Welcome to another episode of the Tom Shimmer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. I hope everyone had a great weekend. I'm back in Arkansas this week uh, for the majority of the week, uh, working here and then headed to Idaho over the weekend for a couple of days next week and then California. So it's about 11 or 10, uh, 12 days on the road in total, but uh, I have to say I'm still uh, really embracing this idea of being back with people face to face. Thanks for listening in again this week, of course, and as always, a big welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time. And I also want to give a huge thank you to those of you who have been loyal listeners from the start, or for those of you who have at least been with me for a while now. I, I really appreciate all of you, and I can't thank you enough for supporting the podcast. This is, of course, episode 49, so we are only one week away from episode 50. So many of you have embraced the 12 for 12 challenge, and I've seen your posts on Twitter and, and other spots and, and Instagram, etc. cetera. Uh, thanks for that. I really appreciate that. We'll announce the winner next week. The winner of the contest, of course, will win 12 hours worth of personal assessment coaching from me, probably in the form of something like an hour a month for 12 months or something like that. We'll, we'll figure it out. Now, if you're new to the 12 for 12 challenge, take a look at the show notes for details because I'll, I'll outline it there in, in great detail. But here's a quick synopsis of what you have to do to win the 12 hours. First, you have to post a picture on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, or even a video on TikTok. Uh, don't use the story feature, don't use IG story, but um, post a picture, a real post of what you typically do while you listen to the podcast. And then you have to get at least 12 people 12 people in the next week, that's going to be tough, um, to subscribe to the podcast and post about it, right? So 12 hours of coaching, 12 people, that's where we got the 12 for 12. Now, it, you know, again, they might post something like, uh, hey, I just uh, subscribed to the to, at Tom Shimmer pod. Uh, thanks, you know, and they tag you for the recommendation, right? They don't have to post a picture, but they just need to post that they have subscribed to the to the podcast. And if you can get 12 people to do that by next week, and I know that's a lot for one week because we started it last week, that's a lot to do in a week. You will be entered to win the 12 hours of coaching. Um, if more than one of you manages to accomplish this, then and you don't win the 12 hours of coaching, I'll figure out something else for you too because that good deed uh, definitely cannot go unrewarded. So we'll figure it out. And I know that only a few of you have taken it on. It's been great to see. Not everybody will want to do it, and that's okay. I understand if people are too busy, it's no big deal. Uh, certainly not required. Uh, but I do appreciate those of you who have kind of embraced the challenge, and I appreciate seeing the pictures, at least, of what you do while you're listening to the podcast. So check the show notes for the process, but the key is to make sure that you tag the podcast handle uh, and follow the podcast so that I can see uh, those, those notifications. Today, my guest is Pav Wander. Pav is a middle-level teacher in the Toronto area. Many of you would know Pav as one of the co-hosts of the Staff Room podcast and The Drive on Voice Ed Radio. Pav and I today focus on the importance of teacher voice. In Assessment Corner this week, I'm going to focus on the importance of a concept I call acceptable alternatives in assessment and grading reform, where we try to find strategies that bridge the gap between the ideal and the status quo. So that's today's plan. Let's get to it. My conversation with Pav Wander is coming up, but first, don't at me. But I want to open this week with a reminder that we, as educators, have more influence and control over student achievement than we might think. Now, to say adults working in the education system have an influence over student achievement is not a new concept. We all know this. The real question is, 
How much? Now, while I'd like to give a disproportionate amount of credit for achievement to the students, and, and that might appear to be true in any acute moment, we might also want to reflect on what decisions we made leading up to that acute moment the policy and practice decisions that created the conditions under which the students may or may not achieve in the first place. One of my favorite authors is Malcolm Gladwell. He is without question one of the most important intellectual influences on our society. Books like The Tipping Point, Blink, What the Dog Saw, and the most recent Talking to Strangers have influenced not only the way we think, but they've had a far-reaching and permanent impact on society as a whole. One of my favorite books of Gladwell's is Outliers. Now, the subtitle of Outliers is The Story of Success, and that is exactly what the book is about. In the book, Gladwell examines the super successful, and he interrogates the factors that contributed to their success. And while society in general has romanticized success as purely an outcome of individual dogged determination and only attainable by those who are truly special, Gladwell's thesis, for which he provides ample evidence, is that success is often as much, if not more, about the circumstances, opportunities, and even the rules that surround individuals, creating a tilted playing field that makes success for some inevitable. Now famously, or somewhat famously, the book, which was published in 2008, opens with a chapter that recounts an epiphany a woman had at a major junior hockey game in Canada. And for those that don't know, major junior hockey in Canada is arguably the highest level of amateur hockey in the world. Although the teams are not associated with any university, the simplest comparison is to say that the Canadian Hockey League or Major Junior Hockey in Canada is to the NHL what major college football in the United States is to the NFL. The CHL, the Canadian Hockey League, is where the vast majority of professional hockey players come from. Now, in the chapter, Gladwell recounts this woman who was attending the game with her husband noticed that the majority of players on both teams were born in January, February, and March. Now, that might seem coincidental on the surface, but when you put that into the context of cutoff dates for minor hockey, Gladwell starts to paint a different picture. The cutoff for minor hockey at the time, of course, was December 31st. So what on the surface appears to be a meritocracy is actually influenced by the policy decisions that were made in advance. When children are very young, those born early in the cycle will appear to be more competent when really they're just older. You know, kindergarten, first grade, second grade teachers are always wrestling with this too. For example, on your sixth birthday, you're 72 months old, and you could be in grade one if you're late birthday. But other students in that class could be 83 months old. That's basically one-sixth of their lives. So those students who are 83 months old might appear to be more proficient. Are they more proficient, or have they just had that much more exposure to text? Are they physiologically and intellectually advanced? Or is this a simple function of their physiological development based on how many months old they are? So the story of success in hockey, as Gladwell lays it out, is that if we start making these finite distinctions and abilities at too young an age, we start to siphon players off to better coaches. We start to provide them with more favorable ice time. We provide them with stronger competition so that by the time these athletes reach the age of 15, 16, 17 years old, they are better hockey players, and then are disproportionately selected into major junior hockey. So at the time when you're watching them play hockey, it seems as if these players have risen to the top on their own merit. And they have to a point. Look, I I don't want to take anything away from their efforts, because opportunities only turn out when you act upon them. However, 
the opportunities were slightly skewed given the January, February, March athletes were given that advantage. So I, I know that story is fairly well documented and a lot of people have talked about it and it has caused many athletic associations to reconsider their entry points and cutoff dates. Okay, so what does that have to do with schools? In the chapter, there were two passages that caught my attention, and I think they relate directly to the school experience, especially when it comes to assessment and grading. Here's the first passage from page 32. Gladwell writes, We make rules that frustrate achievement. We prematurely write people off as failures. We're too much in awe of those who succeed and far too dismissive of those who fail. And most of all, we become much too passive. We overlook just how large a role we all play. And by we, I mean society, in determining who makes it and who doesn't. So now take that passage and replace the word society with educators and put that quote into the context of the school. How large a role we all play, and by we, I mean educators, in determining who makes it and who doesn't. Think about the rules of achievement either now or before. Think about the traditional way we've done grading, for example. Who said tests are worth 40% of the grade? Who said there should even be weighted task types? Who decided what questions to ask? Who decided what the focal point of instruction on the standards should be? The answer to all of those questions is we did. Even if we involve the students and are more student-centered, we're still the ones guiding it. Now, don't misunderstand. I don't have a problem with our involvement. My problem is when adults act like we had nothing to do with it. That's the problem. When students aren't successful and don't reach their potential, we we just can't back away and say, well, that's on them. I had nothing to do with that. I set it up. They didn't knock it down. Now, sure, in some cases, it is on them. But in so many more cases, if we're being honest, we need to look in the mirror and ask ourselves, how did we or how did I contribute to this? It's not a blame thing. So, so please don't misunderstand. It's not our fault. It's not about pointing fingers. But it is about the convenience of being far too passive when students aren't successful. We love to take credit for the successes, but are we prepared to take responsibility for the failures? It kind of plays out like this, right? Imagine this conversation between two teachers. Hey, did you hear about Maria? She got a full academic scholarship to Stanford and is going to major in history. And I, of course, was Maria's history teacher. And, you know, so I swell with pride and, and uh, I feel good about that because, you know, Maria's going into history. She's going to Stanford and, and maybe I had a little bit of part of that, right? That's on me. I, I, and I should be proud of that. But then our colleague points out, hey, um, wasn't Jason also in your class before he dropped out of school? And then I immediately shift my response. Oh, Jason, Jason, all right. What was I supposed to do with Jason? I mean, look at his home life. Look at his peer group. Look at his life choices. I did everything I could, but you know, there's not much you can do in situations like that. Oh, I see. So I'm going to take credit for Maria, but none of the responsibility for Jason. Here's a thought. We know that teachers make a difference. And I want you to be proud of students like Maria and proud of yourself for contributing to her success. But with this catch, take credit for Maria's success only to the level at which you're prepared to take responsibility for Jason's failure. I mean, of course there are exceptions to this, but my point is that we can't conveniently become passive when it doesn't suit us. So one thing to reflect on are your rules 
and the degree to which they might be frustrating achievement. Individually, look at your assessment and grading rules. Think about homework, how you handle homework. Think about your reassessment policies. Think about what counts as evidence. Think about all of it. Take a fresh look at it all and ask yourself whether these rules are inadvertently, because I know you're not doing this on purpose, but ask yourself, are these rules inadvertently frustrating achievement? As a school, do this as well. As a district, are we being too passive? Are we just moseying along, doing what we've always done, and allowing results to unfold in the exact same manner year after year? What about access to different programs? What about the way we you know, continually support sort of gifted programs? Or what about our discipline procedures? All of it. Question all of it. And reflect on whether we are being too passive about the results of practices and policies that we actually developed. Ask yourself, where did we make choices outside of what's mandated by the state or the province? Why did we make that choice? Who does that choice benefit? And who does that choice disadvantage? My point through Malcolm Gladwell's thesis is that we have to be honest about the influence we have on who makes it and who doesn't. Now, later in the chapter, Gladwell makes what I think is his most salient point related to this whole reflection or audit that I think is necessary for schools and teachers to go through. Again, Gladwell is referencing society as a whole, but I think it is a seamless alignment with education specifically. Now, listen to this carefully and reflect on the degree to which this is true in your school or yourself or within your context. Gladwell calls it the machinery of achievement, and I love that. Okay, page 33, here's what Gladwell writes. We could easily take control of the machinery of achievement. In other words, not just in sports, but in other more consequential areas as well. But we don't. And why? Because we cling to this idea that success is a simple function of individual merit and that the world in which we all grow up and the rules we choose to write as a society don't matter at all. Now think about that last part with a slight shift. But we don't. And why? Because we cling to this idea that success in school is a simple function of individual merit and that the world in which we all grow up and the rules we choose to write as a teacher, as a school, as a district, as a province, as a state, the rules we choose to write don't matter at all. Step one in this entire exercise is to acknowledge that we have more control over the machinery of achievement than some are willing to admit. Now, I think some are unwilling to admit that because if we admit that we have control over the machinery of achievement, then we're obligated to take some responsibility for the subsequent results. And that's daunting for some folks. But step one is to acknowledge that we have control, a disproportionate amount of control over the machinery of achievement. Two, become more active versus passive. Let's actually take back control of that machinery of achievement. Yes, there are some things that are beyond your control, but so many more are not. Just because a system requires you, for example, to report using percentage system or a percentage-based grade, doesn't mean there isn't much that can be done to shift the culture of grading and reporting. And I know people always say, but Tom, the province wants this, or Tom, the universities want that. Honestly, that is just an excuse and a cop-out for inaction. There's a lot that can be done despite those policies. I've done it myself. I've seen countless examples of others do it. If you don't know how to do it, there are plenty of people out there who know how and can help you. I suspect, however, that the majority of people making that assertion are on the unwilling side 
of that conversation and using the province or the universities as cover. I don't know that to be true, and I hope I'm wrong, but that is my suspicion. So acknowledge that we have more control over the machinery of achievement. Take back control of that machinery of achievement and begin to write rules that truly level the playing field, that truly create equity of opportunity, racial equity, learning equity, socioeconomic status equity. No, you can't change family income, but we can write rules that ensure that income is minimized or even eliminated, but at least minimized as a factor of success. We are the system. The system is not some inanimate object. The system is the people who work within it. The system is all of us. And one more point. No more sentences that begin with, I'm just a. Stop minimizing yourself. Okay, you're not just a teacher, just a principal, just one superintendent. Okay, we are all part of the system. And we all have a role to play in helping bring about more success, helping bring about a level playing field, helping to rewrite the rules of what success and achievement looks like. You are the system. Take back control of the machinery of achievement and start today creating the kind of educational experiences you know our students deserve. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcasts. Now let's get back to the episode. Joining me today for the interview is Pav Wander. Pav is an elementary school teacher with over 15 years experience, hailing from the same neighborhood where she teaches in the greater Toronto area. Currently, Pav works with a grade seven and eight class and will soon be working as a middle years student success counselor at the Toronto District School Board. Pav is passionate about creating programs at school involving technology, coding, and robotics, while also encouraging her students to infuse and embed their identities and stories into the work that they produce at school. Along with her former teaching partner, Che Cheney, Pav hosts the Staff Room podcast, as well as a live educational music radio show on Voice Ed Radio called The Drive. Pav, you are a busy woman. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Thank you so much, Tom. Busy, but not busy enough for this great conversation. I'm so happy to be here and really looking forward to our chat today. Yeah, I am too. I'm excited to have you here. You and I have just, you know, recently connected uh, mm -hmm. and I am a loyal subscriber to your podcast and full disclosure, uh, I was a guest on your podcast this past summer, so I suppose turnaround is fair play, right? <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> so, fair play. Yeah. And I have to say that it's one of our most listened to episodes. And uh, Che and myself have gone back and listened to that episode several times, passed it on to our principals and colleagues, because uh, everything that you bring to the table um, is is so valuable. And we've learned so much about our assessment and feedback practices uh, from you as well. So, so thank you. Yeah. The turnaround is, is definitely, I'm very <laughs> grateful for it. <laughs> well, I appreciate you saying that, uh, the e-transfer will be, will be on its way shortly for you <laughs> saying that. Uh, but honestly, that's very kind of you to say, and I appreciate it. I, I really enjoyed our conversation this past summer, but in all seriousness, you know, I have been a listener of your podcast and really enjoy it. And one of the things that I really appreciate about what you and Che do is, is your level of authenticity as you approach the work and reflect on your work. And of course, as a, a current practitioner and a podcast host and someone I have come to know as that reflective thinker, 
uh, about education, we definitely could take this conversation in a number of different directions, and and we will go in a few for sure. Mm -hmm. But I want to begin with a topic that I know has been currently on your mind, and that is the topic of teacher voice. Uh, Why for you is teacher voice a topic that you've been acutely paying attention to? Uh, really great question, Tom. And I have to say um, that it's because I'm a teacher and I'm just a teacher. And and I feel like there's there's lately, especially, there seems to be this little bit of shame that's attached to being just a teacher. And, uh, and, and it makes me think of when mothers say, oh, I'm just a stay-at-home mom. Um, any of us who know and place ourselves in, in that, that position know that it's, it's a lot of work and it's enough. Um, and so obviously we know that we are not just teachers, but I feel like because, because we assert ourselves as just teachers and not, you know, teachers on an administration track or teachers that are uh, department heads or chairs within their school, uh, that they feel like their voices don't matter as much. And, and I think that that's something that Che and I have both really started to focus in a lot on um, and, and really concentrate a little bit more on the fact that, yeah, our, our voices do matter. The teachers that are around us, their voices matter very much. And, and we should be doing what we can to amplify those voices. So it's, it's not solely just about decision making. It's not like, you know, I have ideas and that's a huge part of it. Um, but it's also my experiences, my reflections, the way that uh, my identities intersect to relate to the students that I have in front of me. There's so many ways that our voice can add value to education. And, and that's why uh, Che and I both feel this, that it's something that we need to be amplifying uh, for ourselves more, but also for our colleagues and for teachers that we see all around us. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm getting a little tired of, of hearing, uh, yeah. Okay. So you're just a teacher. What else did you, what else do you do? You know, what, like what makes you more significant? I don't need to be more significant. I'm a teacher and I'm an active practitioner and the things that I do in my classroom are important. And, uh, and so those, those things need to be highlighted. So, uh, teacher voice has been a huge passion of mine and it's something that I try to bring to the table in, in almost everything that I do podcast or just teaching related. Right. You, you started by saying there is some shame associated with, uh, you know, being quote unquote, just a teacher. So can we talk a little bit more about that? Where, where is that? I know it probably is different for, everyone for teachers, you know, in terms of the minutiae, but generally speaking, where, where is that coming from? Is that coming from society in general? Is that coming from inside the profession? Is it coming from a little bit of both? Where, where is that shame, that quote unquote shame of being just a teacher coming from? I think, uh, I think that it does come from a societal expectation of always needing to be moving forward. Um, just, you know, you can't sit in the same place for too long, uh, because then, then you're not doing anything, you're stagnant. Um, but we all know that education is constantly evolving. There's no, there's nothing stagnant about it. Um, everything is changing. And, and I know this is something that's going to come up a little bit later as well. Uh, and, and people feel like, well, if you're not doing anything to advance your career, then you're just sitting in the same place and you're not doing anything. You're not evolving as an educator. You're not bettering yourself. You're not bettering education. Um, but we know when we're active practitioners in that place, you know, that that's not the case. 
Yeah. Um, just as a stay-at-home mom is not just a stay-at-home mom, that mom is managing and is doing everything uh, to run the household. Um, teachers are doing the same in their classrooms. And so I think that that a little bit of that shame, I, I can say in my own experience that sometimes that shame gets placed on yourself because you feel guilty maybe right. for being in the same position for so long and not doing anything for others to, to see from the outside looking in that you are making some sort of move. But um, you know, I could, I could just as well be just a teacher my entire career and, and make huge uh, changes over the course of my career and, and just evolve to, you know, as I have um, in my career and, and there's, there shouldn't be any shame attached right. to that. So it rem- I think, uh, yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of, uh, you know, my days, even as an administrator where, you know, if you were a vice principal, there was kind of this inherent pressure and a little bit of, uh, you know, either mocking or cynicism about the quote unquote career vice principal. And mm-hmm. that if you weren't aspiring to become a principal, or if you're as a teacher and that you are, you know, in a, in various stages of refinement, I think if we're constantly seeking the new and the advancement, we never have a chance to let ideas kind of come to fruition and refine them and, 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 hone our craft in that way. So I, mm. I think your point is well taken about how there is that societal. I mean, we did go through a, a little blip during the pandemic where where society saw teachers as heroes and they finally saw teachers for the people that they actually are in our society. And yet, of course, it reverts back and there are That's those right. societal <laughs> ideas that come to the forefront. Um, yeah. I know that you have um, a recent assertion I saw on social media. And, and by the way, social media doesn't help with this either, with people constantly no. talking about the new and we're always, even if it's just semantics and changing words. But uh, on social media, you recently asserted that, uh, quote, the seeking of teacher voice is often performative and more about seeking validation on predetermined decisions than the seeking of new understandings and insights. So here's my question. Uh, From a teacher perspective, uh, what advice would you give to school leaders or district leaders to ensure that when they seek teacher voice, it is authentic and not performative? Yeah, great question, Tom. Um, I think that in order to move away from that performative nature of seeking teacher voice, it needs to be consistent, um, and it needs to it needs to be happening based on all kinds of school based decisions. Uh, just not not just you know here and there plucking teachers and say, hey, what is your opinion on this. Um, but making sure that there's teacher representation and everything that's happening uh, within within the school community. And so um, I think that that sometimes we say that, um, but it doesn't actually come to fruition because people revert back. Um, you know, they, be, they go back to their comfortable spaces and, and putting those things into action is, is sometimes difficult. Um, you know, you brought up social media a couple of days ago. I made a, a bit of a, a tweet that was a little bit in jest. It was, it was a, and, and it went viral, which, it, you know, it's never really your intention. It's like, I wish that some of my other content would go right. viral in this <laughs> way, right. maybe not this one. Yeah. But it was, it asserted that there needs to be more experience for um, for administrators when they are teachers. Like to, they need to spend more time as teachers, and uh, and it ruffled a, a few feathers. But then it also there was a lot of support in that, and so um, 
I think that what needs to happen is a little bit of greater empathy when it comes to administrators understanding what some of those plights are that teachers are experiencing. So, so if you don't have a, a vast amount of experience being a teacher before you become an administrator, then you need to be spending some more time with teachers in the teaching space, in the classroom, to truly understand why some of the things that teachers are voicing are being voiced. Um, really get to know the root of, of the problem, spend a little bit more time to see where some of those struggles are and maybe where, uh, where the, the voice is coming from. Um, and I'm not saying that the voice is always, you know, complaining in nature or, you know, uh, talking about things that are lacking, but oftentimes just understanding why something is being brought to the table uh, it can be difficult if you haven't spent a lot of time truly understanding where where the teacher is coming from. So I think yeah. that in order to avoid that performative nature, um, really get to know your staff. Like, I mean, mm -hmm. this is going to come up again, but relationships truly matter between administration and the teachers and, and really getting to know where, where that experience is coming from and why it matters in the classroom setting. So, yeah. um, I think empathy is a, is a huge part of that. Um, getting to know teachers and, and what's going on in the classroom is very important to that as well. So, um, and then, and then actually try the ideas, right? Things that teachers bring to the table, they shouldn't be dismissed, like really give teachers an opportunity to, to bring something in and try it. Um, and just to, just to give it a shot, you never know, sometimes it's, it's, it's worth it. And, uh, and teachers, you know, they are the most qualified people in their spaces. And so, they do know what they're talking about. And, and sometimes those things really work out well for the school. Yeah, I have, I have seen your, your point about, uh, you know, rapid acceleration of a career or advancement. I've seen examples of that, uh, not personally, but certainly in districts I've worked in where, uh, you know, the advancement into administration is rather um, rapid. Not a lot of teaching experience behind that, which, you know, sometimes in fairness, districts are desperate to have people in positions. But I think your point about being open to learning. I mean, teachers in, in, at times really lean on administration for perspective and for balance. And if you don't bring that experience to the table, then it's the idea of being open to learning mm -hmm. more or understanding more about the teacher's experience, because it's hard, you know, for someone who's taught for four years is suddenly an assistant principal. And yet there's a 20 year veteran who's, who's seeking support and balance of perspective. And you really can't bring that to the table. And that's, mm -hmm. you know, in fairness to them, you can't invent experience, but but being open to that conversation and being and empathetic about the plight instead of instead of just mm -hmm. dismissing it because it's coming from, quote unquote, uh, you know, just a teacher, as we talked about before. So I, I think that point yeah. uh, really important that we approach the work because, you know, part of it. Yeah. If you want to be a manager, then that's great. Uh, yeah. You probably can do that after three or four years of teaching. But if you want to be an instructional leader and you want to be able to have credible conversations with teachers about best practice, about what a refining practice, about what might work with students that experience is invaluable for sure. So now let's, let's uh, maybe turn the tables a bit because I think, you know, consultation teacher voice can be tricky, right? Because mm -hmm. if we turn the tables, it's also quite possible that an administrator seeks teacher voice authentically, but you know, the input is not really followed or used, you know, that maybe the input was about a potential decision where there were several directions that we could go. Uh, and the decision was made that did not match the input that the teacher gave. So it was nothing performative about it. It was just a choice that leadership made or, or department made or something like that. So 
The first part of the, this two-part question is, what should teachers keep in mind, um, you know, in that kind of scenario? What is the best way to kind of handle a situation where you've authentically, your input has been authentically sought by leadership, um, but your advice was not taken? So mm -hmm. how, how might teachers keep perspective on that? And I have a follow-up to this, but let's go with that first part. Yeah. And, uh, and it's a great question. And it had me actually reflecting a lot on my own experience as a teacher and, and things like this, this has happened to me. And, you know, and I think back, <laughs> did I deal with it the best possible way? <laughs> Maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> but, yeah. but like, like all great practitioners, we reflect and we go back and we say, well, okay. Um, what needs to happen in that situation? And I think that teachers need to understand that the hardest part is voicing your opinion. And mm -hmm. so I think that that is something that shouldn't stop. Uh, so teachers don't be deterred by that when it happens, because it will happen. There is mm -hmm. often a lot of red tape that needs to be cut through um, when when we bring ideas to the table. And and, and that's happened to me quite a few times. Um, so it, we can't be deterred by it. Um, but then we go back to the fact that relationships do matter. And so if we have a good relationship with our administration, then then we know that we can continue to bring ideas and opinions to the table. And that shouldn't stop. Um, and then also there needs to be clear communication that is consistent and uh, and transparency. So, you know, as as a teacher, um, I shouldn't be keeping anything, uh, you know, behind me to say, okay, if I get permission to do this, then eventually I'll be able to do whatever I want. Um, we need to be transparent with our ideas and, and always understanding that it's, um, it's in the best interest of our students and, and our pedagogies and the things that we want to do in our classroom, our best practices. Um, so, you know, don't be deterred by any, any decisions that are made that maybe don't take your, your opinion into consideration. Um, but of course, at the same time, if it is a pattern, then maybe that's something that comes back to the communication bit and the uh, the relationship bit, that maybe there's something that needs to be explored a little bit further there. But um, but I think, yeah, as, as a teacher, we need to continue to remain consistent with our communication coming from us um, and, and be transparent and understand that sometimes th this is the hardest part is actually speaking up and saying, well, you know, I really think that we should be doing this this way, or right. uh, I would really like to share my experience on this matter. Mm -hmm. um, and and in my opinion, and or in my experience, that that has been difficult. Um, but then once we are doing it more often, it becomes a little bit easier. Yeah, I, I think it's important for all of us in any consultation situation to recognize the big picture, was, which is that our input or our advice isn't always going to be mm -hmm. taken. But let's flip this around again now back to leaders, because, mm -hmm. you know, from a teacher perspective, um, what can or should leaders, you know, maybe proactively do to ensure that teachers don't misunderstand or inadvertently think the exercise was performative. You know, when, when we don't take the input as administrators, as leaders, what, what do teachers need in that situation? So what advice would you give to say school administrators or district level to say, if you're not going to follow teacher input, what, what should we do to make sure that teachers don't feel a, a little bit, um, you know, end up becoming a little cynical about the process? Yeah. Uh, and, and I think I'm going to repeat the first two points that I made okay. the last time that relationships matter and there needs to be clear and consistent communication that is transparent mm -hmm. because uh, it needs to be coming from both sides uh, of, of that relationship. Um, and so knowing, 
I think where the motivating factors are, and it goes back to, you know, spending that time getting to know the plights of, of the teachers and where some of these ideas might be stemming from, what are the struggles that are leading to these ideas, these opinions, these recommendations from teachers, um, understanding that bit is very important. So spending time with teachers um, and then and then again, uh, coming back with ideas that might assist with those struggles, like getting to the right. root of the problem. You, you made a suggestion, teacher, and unfortunately, we couldn't use it. I want you to know that I care. I want you to know that I, I want your experience in the classroom to be uh, better. So here are some alternative op options that we can try. Um, so I'm not uh, dismissing you. I am not dismissing the things that you are uh, experiencing, the struggles that you might be experiencing. Um, we can't try this, but here's, uh, you know, X, Y, and Z that we can mm -hmm. try. Uh, so actively bringing those options to the table, these alternatives to the table, I think is is important as well. And uh, and I think that that keeps the relationship um, moving and it keeps it strong. And, um, uh, you know, and hopefully that takes things into a um, more action based relationship rather than that performative uh, right. stuff that we sometimes see. I often, you know, think about some of the lessons I learned in leadership and something that I definitely learned and grew into and kind of learned in real time was was making sure that if you weren't going to uh, use the input or use the advice in a consultation uh, scenario, that the people who provided input, if you're not taking their advice, you owe them an explanation as to why. Mm -hmm. Explain to them why that advice, even though we appreciate the input, here's why we couldn't do that or can't do that. And then your suggestion of, hey, we can't do this, but maybe here's a hybrid or maybe here's a, mm -hmm. a, a possibility to kind of at least satisfy part of what we're trying to resolve. And, and, and the more I learned that, and again, experience comes from poor judgment. You make mistakes, you learn from it. Uh, but for me, you know, understanding that teachers need explanation. And then once that explanation, and as you say, if the relationship is there, the trust is there, uh, then we can move ahead. And and we are actually better because of it, because there is that, that constant communication. I, I want to shift to another topic that you recently talked about in your podcast. And I really, uh, I was really taken with your reflection um, on the concept of teaching loss. Um, you know, we've all heard about the idea of learning loss and, and likely everyone has some kind of opinion about it. Last February, I ranted on my podcast and this mm -hmm. podcast listeners might remember about the myth of learning loss last February. Um, but, but you, you were so eloquent in talking about teaching loss on that episode that I'm, I'm hoping you can bring that here. So what is from your perspective, the, the concept of teaching loss and why is it something that we have to consider right now? Yeah. Teaching loss is, you know, it's very, an emotional response from me or an emotional reflection that I've been feeling, uh, for the last year and a half. And, and it's this idea that there are experiences as teachers that we have missed out on because of, uh, the pandemic, because of, uh, because of loss within the classroom, um, because of the missed time that we have had. And, and I first experienced this idea of teaching loss when I was off on my two maternity leaves. And so mm -hmm. I was, I was off for a year, so two years in total. And, uh, and, and I felt this, this great sense of loss. Like I've, 
education kept going, but I wasn't there for it. I wasn't there to experience it. And the changes the, and the evolution that happens within education. So um, again, I, I it was a very um, familiar feeling when we were in COVID and we couldn't do the things that we normally do. And we missed out on opportunities. We missed out on making connections. We missed out on professional development or, uh, you know, working towards uh, some of our educational or professional goals. Um, and so that was, that was where that really came from the idea of teaching laws. Um, and, and it was something that, I guess a lot of people were able to, it resonated with a lot of people that this whole idea. And so there were a lot of reflections coming from all over the place. And, you know, the, you know, there are the, this is where I experienced loss over the last year and a half as a teacher. And I think that this is something that's a little bit harder to dismiss um, because it is such a per personal uh, feeling of, of where some of this loss has come from and how us, how we as as teachers as educators have experienced that teaching loss mm -hmm. and um and so i covered i outlined uh, there i wrote a blog and then also mm -hmm. used it as a as a oral reflection as part of the podcast as well but there were six areas that i felt that i had experienced loss and so that was making connections with teachers and students um, so there's there's a whole cohort of students that have passed through the school that I just I have no idea who they are. And, and it's something that we still talk about. Che teaches uh, has been teaching at the same school for his entire career, and he has never gone through um, a group of students that he didn't know in one way or another. Um, and so that's something that's different for me because I, I tend to move around schools a lot, but for a teacher who has been in the same place for a, a long period of time, that is a weird experience that, you know, I haven't coached any of these kids. I haven't done any extracurricular activities with these kids. I don't know them. And so it's a little bit of a different experience to be in the classroom with them. You have to get to know them from the very beginning. And, and that can be a weird feeling. Um, leadership opportunities is another one there, a whole 18 months has gone by and, and, you know, there are many teachers that were planning to move up to administration needed to take some courses or, uh, get the experience that's needed for that. And they just, they couldn't make that opportunity. And, and it could have been a missed opportunity. There are people that just kind of gave up on some of those, those things that they were aspiring to do because of that missed time. Uh, professional development is another one I remember mentioning in the in the blog that um, that there were large amounts of money that that are usually dedicated towards professional development in in the school budget that went unused. And when you take a look at that number, that amount, you you sort of realize how much professional development we were maybe passively receiving and uh, and that didn't happen. And so you wonder, you know, maybe did my did my practice suffer because of that loss um because i didn't get to experience it and that that can be negotiable that can be yes or no but uh regardless we missed out on it um there's testing new pedagogies so mm -hmm. i've learned a lot i haven't been able to apply it right so there's there's that sense of loss um teaching evolving content new curriculums that have come out in the last little while that i haven't been able to teach 
And then, of course, the the extracurriculars and getting to know students. And that's still I'm still experiencing that loss because there are a lot of great programs that we run in our schools that students don't get to have if they're not in school. And so, uh, you know, robotics programs, coding programs that can cost a lot of money if you are going to, you know, places outside of the school setting to to get them. And so a lot of students are not missing out on that. And I know that sounds a little bit selfish, uh, self-centered for the teacher to think that they missed out on something. But providing that opportunity for students is something that uh, that I pride myself on um, when when sometimes it's not available to students. And so not being able to do that can be pretty challenging. And I felt that loss as well. So um, a very reflective idea, but one that has resonated with many. And so I think there's a little bit of validity in uh, in exploring that teaching loss topic a little bit further. Yeah, it is certainly not uh, selfish to focus on self. Listeners, you'll remember from last week, my conversation with Tina Bogren about self-care for educators and and how important it is for teachers to focus on themselves so that they can be better for their students. Pav, I'm wondering, now that you recognize this idea of teaching loss, uh, what what I know you can only speak for yourself because this is a very personal thing for everyone. How are you handling it? What what are you doing? What are some ways maybe maybe your strategies or your approach can help others who are also experiencing the same feeling? So how are you approaching this now that you realize this is a thing? This is something that you're dealing with. What what's the what's the strategy or what's the approach that you're taking with trying to maybe not eliminate it, but just understanding how to cope? Yeah. And I think that coping is basically what all we can do because loss is loss. Uh, And so I I am much more intentional. You know, when I am receiving professional development, I'm not just I'm not just sitting there going, okay, this is, you know, an hour and a half that I have to get through in my life. Uh, This is an hour and a half that I am getting right now that, you know, in the future, I may not get because of whatever reason. Um, So, you know, I'm a little bit more grateful for some of the experiences that I do have. Um, When I do get an opportunity to embed some of the things that I didn't get to do, such as, you know, extracurricular things, um, I try and embed them a little bit more in my teaching. So try providing those extracurricular activities within the curriculum. Um, So I'm a little bit more intentional about that. Um, But there are some things that, you know, you just you can't make up for Um, leadership. I know that it can be argued that you can seek those types of opportunities on your own and and you don't need to be in school for those. And so, you know, if if there is something that I feel like I am missing out on, I, I spend a little bit more of my own personal time trying to accomplish some some of those goals. Um, so, but I think that that intention, that mindfulness, the, the gratitude for when I am in, in those situations is, is a way that I am coping with it. Um, and then just sort of putting it behind me and, and grieving it and, and then moving on because Mm -hmm. I can't get the time back, but I can, you know, make changes to things as they go forward and, and being a little bit more intentional with the way that, uh, I approach these six areas uh, moving forward. So, um, yeah, as you said, it is, it is a very personal thing that we do. And I think that in, in the reflections that I've seen from other people, I think that intention is, is something that's top of mind now as we move forward. It it strikes me that maybe even the awareness alone is Mm -hmm. helpful to realize that what you're feeling, where it's sourced, 
where it's coming from, to be able to name it, you know, the whole idea of naming it and noticing and understanding mm -hmm. where it's coming from, that alone can at least help uh, with the coping of that, of that situation. Certainly something that every teacher is reflecting on and experiencing. You know, your point about the, uh, the students, I, I've worked with some teachers this year who have students in the 10th grade. They're, they've, they've moved into high school after middle school, but, but pan the pandemic came when they were at the end of grade eight. Right. Uh, they spent their first year of high school, ninth grade, they spent that first year in remote learning. And now mm -hmm. they have 10th grade students in their school who've never set foot in their building until this fall. And I don't think yeah. we realize the kind of, you know, even, even though we can name and notice it, I, I don't know that we know what the residual effect of all of this, because we're still in the midst of it. We're, we're not done with the pandemic. And certainly there's maybe, right. maybe other things to come. Okay. Before we finish up uh, today, Pav, we have to talk about the podcast because I want listeners to know about the Staff Room podcast. Um, so let's talk about a few things. Uh, where did this idea come from? Uh, what is the sort of main focus? Listeners who aren't familiar with the podcast, tell us a little bit about, obviously I know, but tell us a little bit about what the main focus of the podcast is and how did you and Che end up becoming this dynamic podcasting duo? <laughs> uh, so, okay, I'll start with the podcast uh, yeah. itself. Uh, the Staff Room podcast is very reflective in nature. And uh, Che and myself, Che Cheney, he's a former colleague. Um, I wouldn't say former colleague. I, I used yeah. to work with him in the same school. Um, we don't anymore. Um, but we, we've we remained as active co-teachers. So we share a Google Classroom and all kinds of resources and, and you know, we're helping each other all the time. Um, but the the podcast is a way for, was a way when we first started, and it still is in many ways, uh, a way for us to just reflect on things that have happened in our classroom. And uh, as we talked about these things, we got a little bit deeper into um, some of the the experiences that we've had and where those experiences are coming from. So we just, uh, we used it as an, as an opportunity for us to just reflect a little bit of comedic banter to kind of, it's just like hallway conversations between you and a colleague and, and just talking about the things that have happened and reflecting on why they happened. How did it begin? Um, I was teaching uh, rotary science. An old friend of mine had come who I went to school with um, said, I know you still teach in the community that we still, that we grew up in. Um, and I'd like to give back something to the community. He's a real estate agent, but he, uh, he has a podcast and he's got like a, a podcast that is very well produced. Uh, he's got a graphic designer and a copy editor and a producer and a studio and all of this stuff. And he said, uh, I'd love to do something that gives back to the community a little bit and the students and something. Do you have any ideas? And I said, well, podcasting. Uh, the students have never been exposed to something like this. And it would be really cool for you to just come in and maybe run a workshop on how to uh, do a podcast. And little did he know that Che and I were taking notes in the back. Going, uh, this sounds really cool. We should do this. Yeah. So you brought in um, Che's class. So I was teaching Rotary Science. I brought this to Che and I said, you've got a class and you do Genius Hour in your class. This seems like something that would work really well with genius hour and, you know, really researching particular topics and, and talking about them. And so he brought my friend jazz brought the entire class to the studio and taught them how to use the equipment and how with the process of creating a podcast. Um, and, and then he uh, interviewed Che and myself for the podcast as well. And we just, the exhilaration that we felt during that recording, that interview, we said, we have to do this. 
this is something that we need to do. And, and so we started our own podcast with, with Jazz and Laura's help from the REC team. Um, and they gave us, you know, all kinds of help in starting our own podcast. And that's, and that's essentially what we did. We said, we're just going to sit around once a week. Well, it would be, the plan was once a month and then it turned into three times a week. Mm-hmm. Um, so we <laughs> just sat around and we talked about, this is what happened in, yeah. you know, this topic. And, uh, and it just kind of the, the feedback that we got from people was, I can see myself sitting at the table with you guys and having this conversation and talking about the stuff that happened in your class. And there were so many times that I nodded my head and said, yes, the same thing happened in my class, or this is the experience that I had. We got into eventually some deeper topics. Um, and we talked about things like imposter syndrome and, uh, you know, all kinds of toxic positivity and these uh, things that we see in social media and how could these things be affecting our students and in our classroom or even us as teachers. Uh, and so that's, that's really where that went. Um, how did Che and I become the dynamic duo that we are? Um, Che and I, it's very interesting because we're very different people, different upbringings, different, um, entry points into education. Um, but we share a very similar inquisitiveness, curiosity, and wanting to explore education a little bit. And we're not afraid to try new things. And I think that that was just the perfect recipe, um, for creating this. Um, Che and I don't always agree on topics, but we're very, um, open to hearing each other's perspectives. Uh, and so I think that that what that d- has done is has created a real safe learning environment for us and for listeners. Mm-hmm. And so we talk about some really difficult topics, but we're able to bring different insights um, and different viewpoints, which has helped a lot in our, each other's understanding and also brings those different perspectives to the listeners so that they can hear multiple perspectives and viewpoints as well. So. Um, I think that that's where that comes from. So we're we're very very different, which you can tell mm-hmm. by yeah. looking at us, hearing us, and and all of that. But but we share a lot of similarities and common ground. And I think it's that common ground that that sort of makes us as dynamic as as you say we might be. <laughs> <laughs> the dynamic duo, yes, uh, listeners. If you have not listened to uh, the Staff Room podcast, uh, what what you'll find out right away that Pav and Che are quite different with the way that Che typically introduces himself. <laughs> On the podcast, right. so we'll just we'll just leave that there and let you find out what well, I mean by that. Uh, you do have one thing in common that I often see on social media, and that is both of you at the batting cages, uh, <laughs> getting getting this working on your swing. I suppose for slow pitch season next year, I, I suppose. But uh, it's a it's a really uh, I think the connection between the two of you, in all seriousness, is is authentic, uh, and I think from from my perspective as an outsider. It's why the two of you can go to certain depths in conversations because there's obviously a, a trust between the two of you in terms of perspective and the, and the mm-hmm. voice that you're bringing to the conversation. And, and I've come to really appreciate that uh, in listening to your podcast. Okay, I've got two questions left for you, Pav, uh, okay. questions that I ask everyone who comes on the podcast. And here's the first one, and you can definitely take this in any direction. It doesn't have to be about what we've talked about so far. It could be something, uh, any direction you want to go with this one. Here's the first one, educationally speaking. What keeps you up at night? So lately, this has been the swift shift in pedagogies or the inconsistencies in, in um, I guess, pedagogical exposure um, for students. Is this something that 
is inadvertently harming our students. So that's something that I think about. Um, things move are moving so fast, especially now uh, post-COVID or during COVID, I would say. Um, there's a lot of things that are shifting really quickly. There are a lot of um, pedagogical methods that are that are shifting. And, and what I'm always thinking about is, are, are students going to be able to pull what they need from the way that we have been teaching? And a lot has changed in the last few years. Um, and, and use that to become, um, you know, successful parts of the society? Are they going to be able to, to do the things that they want to do um, with everything that has changed? And so I'm, I'm often thinking about that. And I'm often thinking about, um, you know, what, where has been my, my role in, in either helping that situation or, or harming the situation in shifting so many times and trying new things and saying, okay, well, now we should be doing this. So let's do this. Um, are students ready for it? And are they able to, you know, be as resilient as we think that they are in, in absorbing those changes and, and making, you know, those shifts for themselves in order to be successful. So, yeah. Yeah, I think it's it's that that evolution process. Are we evolving education too quickly or trying to? Yeah, it reminds me, you know, it's almost coming full circle to what we talked about earlier, uh, which was the idea of, uh, you know, the just a teacher. And then if you're not constantly advancing, not constantly yeah. changing, you're somehow doing something wrong. And I think that's a that's a very um, important concern is that sometimes what we're doing needs refinement. Mm -hmm. And needs to be worked on and does not need to constantly change. So and I appreciate it's mastery. That. Sometimes right. all we need is a little bit more mastery before we can move on to something new. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, we, we have to give things time to, to play out for sure. Okay, last question. Um, and this question I ask everyone that's been on the podcast about, it's basically a general question about success and happiness. And the question is, if a random person stopped you on the street and said, what's your definition of success? How would you answer them? Um, I would say that my idea of success would be uh, achievement based on practical application of, of skills that I have acquired over time. Mm -hmm. and, and I'll give you a little bit of an anecdote to, to help with that understanding. It's, um, I was in my Muay Thai training this morning, and, uh, and lately, the last couple of weeks, we've been doing a lot of drill and kill a lot of skills practice and and not really applying the skills or not you know creating these these complicated combos to practice and and i find myself you know getting a little bit bored sometimes with the 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 skills drill and kill training you know just right. the same right. combo over and over and over again uh, and so my the the professor passed by as as i was practicing and and I, and i kind of you know i stated that i said uh you know this is a little bit boring <laughs> I got to say, like, when are we going to get to the good stuff? And it was uh, his response was, you know, your your skills have to be so second nature that when you pull them out, the the only thing that you need to be making, the only decision that you need to be making is which skill am I going to use or what tool am I am I going to be using? You shouldn't have to be thinking about uh, did I perform the skill correctly? And so, you know, I was thinking to myself, yeah, you make a really good point. And then we did some sparring and then it was, okay, now, now you can take those skills that you've been practicing over the last few weeks and use them. 
And you will see when you are successful, you will see that, you know, you've achieved something when you were able to pull the right tool out to use it in the most practical way. Mm -hmm. And so I think to, for myself, that that is success when, when I can take the skills and the knowledge that I've acquired over time and apply it in the most practical way. I think that that is, that's pretty successful. So reflective thinker and somebody you don't really want to make angry because you might pull out the skills on us and uh, and then <laughs> there's a little bit of a flex there, Pav. I, I appreciate that. And uh, I just happened to be at my class this morning, uh, dropping people like flies. Uh, but great. no, I really, really appreciate uh, the application, the idea that I can draw upon those skills. I think that really does um, put us in that successful position. Listeners, uh, there are an abundance of ways that you can connect with Pav, obviously on Twitter. Uh, Pav's Twitter handle is at Pav Wander. Uh, and also please follow the at staff podcast uh, Twitter handle on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, the staff room podcast is available there. Uh, LinkedIn, you'll find uh, Pav at Che and Pav, the staff room podcast. Um, Pav also blogs and you can check out some of her reflections and musings at the chainpav.com slash blog listeners will have links to all of that in the show notes so please check those out and 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 make sure you uh you you follow pav and check out really check out the T staff room podcast it's a, a really great reflective uh conversation between che and pav so pav it's been great uh having you here i really appreciate uh you taking the time to join me today thanks so much thank you tom uh it's always a great time when i get to talk to you so i'm i'm so honored and so blessed that you invited me on i had a great time today in Assessment Corner this week, I want to explore the concept of acceptable alternatives when it comes to assessment and grading reform. And I've sprinkled this idea in a few other Assessment Corners in the past, but the issue keeps coming up for me, both in the form of questions I receive from workshop participants, but also in my own observations on social media and other platforms. Now listen, orthodoxy is easy. The easiest thing to do is preach assessment orthodoxy, but the problem is that teachers don't live in the orthodoxy of anything. There always seems to be some policy or some regulation or some state or provincial mandate that inhibits our ability to fully implement what the research tells us is the most favorable course of action. There is always something, a limited report card, a system that still requires percentage grades, or even community norms about homework or reassessment and so on. There always seems to be something. Like I said, orthodoxy is easy, but orthodoxy doesn't resolve the acute issues people face when they're trying to at least take one or two steps forward. That's why I'm a big proponent of helping people find what I call acceptable alternatives. Now, acceptable alternatives are approaches to assessment and grading reform that attempt to bridge the gap between the status quo and the ideal. The dilemma is that we don't want colleagues and others to stay stuck, even when the ideal shift is not acutely possible. Maybe long-term it is, and we work to create a more significant change in the long-term, but for now, we need short-term wins. Now, some of you will recall from last week's conversation with Doug Reeves that Doug talked a lot about the importance of short-term wins, and John Cotter also emphasizes that very same thing. Sure, maybe there is a three to five year plan at the district level, but nothing will kill a reform effort like waiting three to five years. Every acceptable alternative, when I help people with this work, every acceptable alternative is flawed or will have a downside because it isn't the ideal or it isn't the orthodoxy. Now, if we accept the assertion that our traditional assessment and grading practices are antiquated and imperfect to begin with, 
then we would say that an acceptable alternative will represent an imperfect solution to an already imperfect system. Now, one such example of this type of workaround is the application of a grading floor when the current system still use, utilizes percentage systems, right? So within the context of a passing threshold being 60%, because I know in some places it's 70% and where I live, it's 50% in a lot of different provinces, it, it, it's different. But let's just use 60% because that seems to be fairly common. So let's use 60% as the passing threshold. A school might say then that the lowest score that can be entered into the gradebook is a 50%. Now, is that a little arbitrary and artificial? Yep, yeah, of course. But the percentage system itself is flawed where there are 60 distinct points of failure and an assertion that there are overall 101 distinct levels of performance. The floor allows for the indication of insufficient evidence without annihilating the student's grade through the use of zeros or sort of invalid mathematics. While it might not be a pure adoption of levels, it does allow teachers to take one step closer to a more accurate and grading reporting system. Now, another one that comes to mind is how to grade on levels when the grading program only accepts percentage-based scores, right? In other words, you can't use levels through integers since the program's default settings would treat a three as a three out of four and treat it as a 75%. So one workaround among many that I often talk about is to convert the scores at source. The key is to assess on levels of quality and then convert the level to an equivalent, allowing then the program to work its magic, so to speak. So if we were using four levels and again the passing threshold of 60%, we might have a scale that sounds something like this. If a student earns a four, the top tier on, on or the top level of proficiency on an, on an assignment, um, you would insert 100%. If they earned a three, you would insert 88%. If it was a two, it would be 76. If it was a one, it would be 64. And if it was a insufficient evidence, a zero, it would be 52. So why did I go 12 back? Well, first, I'd want each increment to be the same. That's a mathematical issue. We want the increments to be kind of regular. Also, I want each level to be aligned with different existing levels, right? So the idea that a four aligns with an A, a three aligns with a B, a two aligns with a C, and a one aligns with a D, and a zero aligns with an F. For some reason, some schools make this harder than it has to be by saying, well, a three is an A, but a four is also an A. You know, I just asked the question, why? Why are you doing this to yourself when it could be so much clearer and so much simpler to, to put it in alignment with what we understand to be true about quality? Anyway, so the only scores a teacher would ever input into the gradebook would be those five, 188, 76, 64, 52. And then all of those would interact a little bit more organically. I say that with air quotes. They would interact to determine the grade. Are there flaws with that approach? Yep, absolutely. You don't need to point them out to me because I am fully aware of them. But does that help move someone or a faculty one step closer to the ideal? Well, every time I've suggested it, it sure does. When people are struggling with how to navigate the imperfections of an existing system, they don't need to be hit over the head with the purity or the orthodoxy of the research. Hey, uh, Tom, how do I manage grading on levels when my gradebook only accepts percentage-based scores? Percentages are ridiculous. We need to rid ourselves of the percentage system. Um, yeah, Tom, I get it, but uh, that's beyond my control. That's up to the state or the province or my district. So I, I'd like to find a workaround. Why in the world would we continue to grade using percentages? Uh, 
once again, Tom, I, I, I get it, but I need a practical solution to do what you're asking me to do. Get rid of percentages. Does that sound like a productive conversation? When you ask me or people ask you, you know, for practical advice, we need to give them practical answers. Theoretical answers for practical dilemmas are not helpful. Take homework, for example. We all know why homework, with some exceptions, shouldn't be graded or contribute to grade determination. But if someone believes, again, not cynically, but if someone truly believes, hey, Tom, if I don't grade it, the students won't do it. We need to help them, not argue with them. Help them take one step closer. So in the case of homework, for example, I might suggest they consider maybe dropping the student's lowest homework score each week or retroactively no counting or zero weighting the homework scores when subsequent assessment results show a deeper level, level of understanding. Are those solutions perfect? Nope. Do they pass the purity test? Absolutely not. Not even close. But do they move that person one step closer to the ideal? Indeed, they do. Even schools and districts that fully embrace sound grading practices or standards-based grading may not be able to implement with purity. We have to find workarounds to start building momentum, even if the workarounds are imperfect. Think about the spirit of the ideal and try to incorporate an ounce of it into your solution, whether that solution be for you or whether that solution be for someone you're supporting. Pontificating your purity, especially, oh, especially on social media, and especially when somebody is looking for practical advice, is a surefire way to get them to not ask you a question again. Okay, this, this pontification and this purity test that we all seem to have to live up to on social media is one of the things I detest most about social media. I have this love-hate relationship with Twitter, and that's one of the things I do not like, is this constant theoretical pontification that can occur. Rare is the teacher, the school, or the district that can go all in in an instant there is almost always a progression that moves through various stages along a pathway toward the ideal, even if the orthodoxy of the idea is never truly achieved. Along that pathway, people need practical solutions, and sometimes those solutions are imperfect. The truth is, they almost always are. So I'm here to tell you, don't worry about that. Don't worry about living up to some purity test that only exists in the virtual world or in the abstract. Sometimes we have to do what we have to do to move the needle. Sometimes we have to find solutions that are imperfect, but embrace the spirit of the ideal, right? From where I sit, acceptable alternatives are necessary to move assessment and grading reform efforts along. Embrace them and block out the noise of those trying to browbeat you or even worse, impress you with the breadth of their theoretical knowledge. Block that out. Any step forward is going to be a positive step forward. And in the end, all of those positive, short-term little steps forward will add up to a very large change. That's it for this week. Remember to follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. You can also email the podcast, tomshimmerpod at gmail.com for guest suggestions or any questions you have for Assessment Corner. Check the show notes for the 12 for 12 contest. We've got one more week to go before we announce the winner for that. Next week, my guest will be my friend, colleague, and co-author, Garnet Hillman. Please subscribe, rate, review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts, of course. And contest or not, please keep spreading the word about the podcast to your friends and your colleagues or even on social media. I really do appreciate it. Have a great week, everyone.